Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We're looking at some quotes. One of my favorites that I use a lot on the internet (laughs) when I'm engaged. The World Wide Web? The World Wide Web. Exactly. Is uh, from Mae West. And the quote is, those who are offended easily should be offended more often. Well, um, which brings us to Kevin Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Who actually is never offended by anything. (laughs) No. Um, And he says, this is so fascinating, this quote. Productivity is for because everyone's obsessed with productivity. And, he, and but he says productivity is for robots. What what humans are going to be really good at is asking questions, being creative, and experiences. The question that I found myself asking of myself was, where am I not replaceable or the least replaceable? Okay, maybe I don't have an incredible, unique opportunity to change the world. But if I did, somewhere in my life, somewhere in front of me, what would it be? I mean, you, you know, both Peter Thiel talks about, you know, make your uh, kind of the, the sector your business is in as small as possible so you could be a monopoly. And Kevin Kelly talks about a thousand true fans. But many guests talk about yeah, Seth uh, Godin also. Start, start as small as possible where you can be really successful without taking, I guess, the huge risk. And you see comedians do that all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, they go into small clubs to try out material. Mm-hmm. So, so it's interesting how it kind of relates then to, the, to health as well. I hadn't made that connection while, while reading the book. 100%. Yeah, the, the, the decent program you follow or the decent business that you can focus on is better than the perfect that you abandon. And in in the case of entrepreneurship, trying to if everyone is your customer, no one is your customer. And it's very expensive to try to advertise to everybody. So Well, the, what, what do you, you know, a lot of people, what do you mean, if, what's a specific example of everyone is your customer, no one is your customer? Because Google, everyone is their customer. Mm-hmm. Apple, everyone pretty much is their customer. Well, now, yes. But I guarantee you, uh, back in the early days with Waz and Steve, I, they were targeting a very, very specific niche demographic for personal right. computer 
with a graphical word processor and so on. It was a niche product. And Google in the early days was, I mean, dismissed entirely by Yahoo. And now, yes, Google's at a point where they're in autonomous vehicles and so on. But I, sh I should say also that in any, if you have any rules for being effective, being efficient, being fulfilled in life, there are always going to be exceptions to those rules. People who do entirely the opposite and have good results. But you have to look at the survivorship, the, the sort of survivorship bias and the percentage win rate. So what I mean by that is, for instance, I could say, if you want to have a, a, a risk-mitigated career where you still have the potential of making a lot of money, you should have a college degree. And we don't have to get into this right now because I know- There are so many of your guests, by the way, who are anti-college. There are. It was, it was refreshing to me. No, there are a lot of guests who are anti-college. But the point I want to make is that it is a, it is a mistake and a, it's, you're, you're falling prey to a number of logical fallacies if you look at, and I see this happening in Silicon Valley all the time because it's romanticized. People say, oh, like Bill Mark, Gates, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg dropped out of college, therefore they're successful. Meaning One, they make it a causal thing, whereas Zuckerberg is a mutant in the best way possible. I mean, that guy would have succeeded no matter what. Right. Uh, maybe not if he was born in Rwanda or whatever, but it, aside from those factors, school, no school, didn't matter. Like That guy was destined for a number of reasons to produce something incredible. Uh, but we, we can we can stay away from I know this is a hot button issue. But, so but, we, but Peter Thiel addresses it really nicely. And he, it was a right, way that I right, hadn't right. heard him say it before, which is that he's not saying this is the case. He's not saying nobody should go to college. He's saying, he's basically saying, view this as a viable option, which uh, for years or decades, nobody did. Correct. So yeah, No, exactly. So he's with the Thiel Fellowship, for instance. They are selecting very, very hand-picked individuals who display promise as entrepreneurs who are wise beyond their years, technically savvy beyond their age, to provide seed funding to. Um, but as you as you pointed out, he went to a great school, went to law school, uh, and there are those who would say, "Well, he's a hypocrite." And of course, as you pointed out, he says, well, I'm not saying it applies to all people, but that it can be a viable option not to go. So Peter's a brilliant guy. He's not, he, in this case, falling prey to any logical fallacies. But where I was going with that is that back to the start small. I think as a general policy for the, the highest percentage of getting on base for your at-bats, starting small is the way to go. So like be, be, even even with like writing for instance like you so you've written four books now but you know you started off building up with a blog mm -hmm. you know you've done a TV show but I'm sure you were shooting videos before then mm -hmm. you 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 experiment that's kind of the essence of what you do you know you you coined the phrase lifestyle design because you design involves experimentation mm -hmm. and not not only that but <laughs> So let me, I'll correct a common misconception, uh, which is, and I think this comes across really clearly in the new book, but uh, some folks look at what I do and say early stage tech investing, or they might look at what you do. And I don't want to speak for you, but I'll speak for me. And uh, I get questions all the time like, how have you developed your risk tolerance? You're such a risk taker. How do you risk, you, you have to risk a lot to make a lot. Like, how do you walk yourself through that? And I just have to kind of laugh because 
I am really risk averse. I think about risk mitigation at all times. You and know, I, I don't know if you remember, but uh, I guess this was August 2014, I want to say. I was on your podcast and we talked yeah. about this. And I yeah. said the key to successful entrepreneurship, at least for me, has been not taking risks, but mitigating them way in advance of starting a business. Yeah, 100%. And what's, what's amusing about that is many of the folks who would be put on an entrepreneurial uh, podium as freewheeling, crazy mavericks, Richard Branson. Oh my God, that guy's crazy. Yeah, he just throws caution to the wind and builds all these businesses. No, not at all. He's written about it even explicitly. His first step is capping his downside before he even takes a stab at anything, capping his downside. Let's look at airlines, notoriously risky. Okay, what did he do? At one point, he ends up stranded at an airport and... Best story, by the way. Yeah, and he's going to be late to getting to his destination. So he just he calls up a chartering company, finds out the price. So to charter an airplane, something like I'm making this up, like twenty twenty five hundred bucks. All right, he has ten seats at two hundred fifty dollars, and he's covered the cost. And he and he he scribbles on a piece of, of cardboard, I think it was uh, Virgin Airways or whatever it was at the time, two hundred fifty bucks to X. Gets ten people to chip in. And they get to the they they fill up the plane. They get to their destination, and this woman walks up and she goes, <laughs> "It's something along these lines." But she's like, "You know, I'm really happy with that experience. If you guys added some drinks or something like that, Virgin could be a thing." <laughs> and so he starts thinking about it, and he's scratching his own itch. This is another really important one. It's so obvious in a way, but so just so neglected by most folks. They try to come up with a sophisticated Harvard MBA business plan. It's like, no, what is a pain in your ass? Fix that. And so he's like, all right, British Airways, I've had a terrible experience. I think I can do better. All right, well, airlines are expensive. So he gets in touch with, I think it was Boeing, to figure out how he can lease a plane, but return it to them later with no penalty if it doesn't work out. So from the very beginning, A, he tested it really small. No risk. In this particular, okay, maybe he doesn't fill a few seats. Who cares? $2,500 total uh, risk capital. And then he gets a lease where he's not going to get stuck with this incredibly expensive piece of machinery if it doesn't work out. And so this is the man with the lion mane, Richard Branson, the guy who kite surfs with tiger sharks. That guy's crazy. No, he's not. He's, he's, he's an adventurer, but from the very get go, he's, he's risk mitigating. And starting small is a way to do that. And another point that Seth Godin makes. Uh, which I think is very, very important. And I'd never heard someone put it this way. He said, big is safe. You can hide. If you try to sell to everyone, uh, your failures aren't as clear. Your shortcomings, your bad planning for the business isn't as clear. But if you're trying to please 10 people and three of them are like, that was a shitty flight. Richard, I'm not happy. You have nowhere to hide. You get direct feedback very clearly when you're trying to say, deal with 10 people or a thousand true fans. And instead of going after music fans, you're going after, I have no idea, uh, emo music fans who happen to be vegan. Okay, you can find that, those people on Facebook and you can target them. Well, in, in your Seth Godin chapter, he mentions his most popular blog post ever was the Fail 10 blog post where he basically says, if you can, get, if you can sell to 10 people who are gonna tell 10 of their friends and then nothing else ever happens, don't do that business. Yep. But if they then tell their 10 friends, then okay, you might have something. So that's a great, easy way to test an idea. Yeah. And he's Seth's just a genius. So he is. 
They're all geniuses here. We keep saying that over and over again, but you've 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 self-selected uh, the the geniuses. But I but I noticed a couple other things that that many of these smart and intelligent people say across all these different fields. One is the concept of uh, saying no, being able to say no, and you had to learn this yourself. Once you started to hit a, a degree of fame after the four-hour work week, you started to get proposal after proposal, pitch after pitch. You were doing investing, and saying no is is difficult. Because people say to you like like oh Tim why don't you have a coffee with me it'll just take fifteen minutes it never takes fifteen minutes yeah. but you still feel bad saying no definitely yeah this is this is something that I've had to as a lot of people learn as a result of great pain and confusion and anxiety the the say no I think is is best put and we were chat we were talking about this just before but Derek Sivers the 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 hell yeah or no and this came about. For him, he had committed to something in Australia and he was in the US and it got closer and closer to the, the departure date and he had to buy a flight and he really just didn't want to go. A number of things had happened in the interim and he, he'd committed to this many months before and he was talking to a friend of his on the phone and I think her wording was a little more explicit but she said, well, it sounds like to me you're at a place in your life where you need to either have a fuck yeah or no. And he's like, God, you're right. That's exactly what it is. So, the and this is a quality problem to say, I, 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 or a quality problem to have. And I think it's worth saying that in the very beginning, when you don't have a leg to stand on and you need to punch above your weight class, and like me, when I first landed in Silicon Valley, I'm driving around in my mom's piece of shit hand-me-down minivan and making no money, can barely cover my rent. That's when you say yes. To a bunch of things, which, by the way, I think Derek even mentions in sure in the beginning. No, yeah, no, absolutely. When you're 18, or when yeah. you're young, or when you're not even look. Even me now, if I go into a new career area, say yes to everything. Right. And Chris Sacco also says it in, in your interview with him. Uh, go to all the meetings. Don't even be invited to the meetings. Just go to them. Yeah, go to all the meetings with that the higher ups have at your company, which he did at Google, and just volunteer to take notes. <laughs> and they're like, what? And then they'll nine times out of ten let you sit there. So Derek, I'm glad you brought that up. So in the beginning, he said. Uh, he was in a band, and I, I know we're jumping all over the place, but he was in a band just starting out. I think he was still at the Berkeley School of Music, and one of his bandmates was like, "Ah, oh, got offered this gig. It's a pig show. It was literally like a state fair where they're selling pigs." And he's like, "Ah," oh. and uh, Derek was like, "What? You got a paid gig?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's like twenty bucks up in Vermont. You want it? I'll give it to you." And he's like, "Hell yeah, I'll take it." Just starting out, and he goes to that pig show, kicks ass at the pig show, walking around with an acoustic guitar, and it led to all these other gigs down the line. But then, as you said, you get to a point where all of a sudden you are defending against inbound, and you start to become reactive. And now everyone's everyone else's agenda becomes your agenda. And rather than rather than forging your own path and deciding with clarity what you want to do, you are now choosing from a multiple choice question, which is, oh shit. Of these 20 grenades in my inbox, which one do I want to handle? Uh, and at that point, you need to develop the ability to deflect, ignore, and say no. But it doesn't, it, it might not be kind of a formula such as, oh, when I get so much inbound, I have to start saying more no's. It's what you said earlier. When you kind of have clarity about what you want to do, so like Derek Sivers initially wanted to be on stage. Then it was it was still if it's not a hell yeah say no but many more things were a hell yeah then so when you're yeah. excited about something and you're beginning something and you want opportunities you're gonna have a lot more hell yeahs in general totally yeah no I agree and, and yet and yet though I think a lot of these people in in your book do attribute 
ultimate peak success to the ability to learning how to say no because that's what eventually does happen. Yeah, I think getting to a place where you are doing well and you are good at what you do requires a lot of yes. To get to a point where you are great or the best at what you do or 10x, let's say, someone who is good in terms of financial rewards or otherwise, then you have to be a master at saying no. And I think is I think Steve Jobs who was not a very happy person at the end of the day. I mean, uh, so so I think that He's put. He's put. He, he's turned into a demigod more often than he should be. But for a product development standpoint and marketing standpoint, absolute genius. But say, innovation is saying no to a thousand things. Mm. I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. And when you get to that point, and this happened for me, uh, and the person who catalyzed it was mutual friend Kamal Ravikant, mm. brother of Naval. I had reached a point where I'd been doing the tech investing. And it started off as 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 a as a very part time side gig, and suddenly I I found myself a number of years later spending probably fifty percent of my time on it, and I enjoyed it, and I was good at it for whatever reason. Uh, it, well, I know one of the reasons is I had a lot of very good guidance from people who knew what they were doing. You surrounded yourself with the five good I, people. Exactly, <laughs> I surrounded myself with the five good people. People like Chris Sacco, who's now a billionaire. It's crazy since I knew him beforehand, uh, or Naval Ravikant. Similar story. Uh, these are people who are the best at what they do, uh, at least in retrospect, certainly. And about two years ago, two and a half years ago, it stopped being fun. It stopped being fun for a host of reasons. But I found that the the oversupply of money, the faddish nature of tech, and how it had taken all on a lot of attributes of Hollywood that I do not like. They're they're redeeming qualities of Hollywood too were becoming a drag on my energy. I was it was not it was not giving me energy, it was consuming energy in a very kind of succubus like way, <laughs> in a bad well, way. I, I think also there comes a point when you start to move from ambition to meaning. And I think like with you with your writing, I as a reader of this book have it impacts me much more than you simply investing in another Company. Right. Now that's selfish of me to say, but but if I'm having, if there's impact on me from this book, there's impact on a lot of people. So you're having mm-hmm. impact from this book more than investing in the next lift or whatever. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, 100%, right? So I had this conversation with the Kamal and I said, look, I'm in an environment now where there's so much money, there's so many players. If I'm going to continue to invest and not get my face ripped off, if I'm going to do a good job and actually make money and be responsible, I probably need to start a fund or raise capital or do fill in the blank. And that would require me putting more of a full-time focus on that. And he said, please don't stop writing. And he, and he, he made, I, I really owe him a lot of credit. He said, well, I've seen people come up to you at speaking events who've lost, say, 100 pounds, 200 pounds on the slow-carb diet or had a, a transformative experience with a four-hour work week, and they're crying because the experience had such an impact. He said what you just said. He's like, you're not going to have that effect as one of 20 investors in a company. By the way, the only reason I just said it is because he had recounted the conversation <laughs> with me. So I was just plagiarizing. Yes. It. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's worth plagiarizing. And if I step out of the line, someone else will take my place. And so the question that I found myself asking of myself was, where am I not replaceable? Or the least replaceable. Okay, maybe I don't have an incredible, unique opportunity to change the world. But if I did, somewhere in my life, somewhere in front of me, what would it be? And it came back to the writing. So 
so that was the impetus for ultimately putting a very up a very public, <laughs> uh, indefinite vacation slash retirement notice related to startups. And what I also found, I think this is this is important, is that in the beginning, like you said, moving from success to meaning or achievement to appreciation, there's a point where perhaps what creates success for someone, and I hate, I dislike the word success, but let's just let's just say financial stability. Something that creates financial stability comes out of a place of excitement. You create something you're really excited about, and you're driven by dopamine and, and adrenaline. And in my case. Now that I was responding to increasingly these manufactured emergencies from founders, which would say something along the lines of, and this is a complete bluff, by the way, 99 times out of 100. Hi, Tim, got your email from so-and-so, who shouldn't have given it to them in the first place, by the way. Hey, got your email from so-and-so. I'm CCing my three founders. Okay, problem number one. Now four people, I don't know, have my email address. Uh, We're closing tomorrow. We're oversubscribed but maybe we could squeeze you in for 25K. We have a lot of respect for what you do. Please find our deck attached. Please let me know by the end of today, A, B, C, D, and E. Now I'm going straight into a culture of cortisol. And it is just a stress-driven, fear of missing out, FOMO uh, ride that I'm signing up for. And when you have to spend, say, seven to 10 years with each company for the big ones to hit, uh, I'm signing up for seven to 10 years of that type of Manufactured. Right, because a good company is going to, you you don't even want to exit. Because let's say the stock market's going up 7% a year, but but a good startup is improving 50 to 100% a year, at least right. in the starting stages. You never want them to exit. So it's going to take seven to 10 years, which is yeah. a long time for you to say goodbye to your money. It's a long time. It's a long time. And, and I'm comfortable with the illiquid nature. But the other thing that happened, just from a purely pragmatic fiduciary standpoint, is that because those private companies are generally speaking uh, an illiquid ax an, an illiquid asset meaning I can't sell them uh, even though I started off being very conservative meaning using a barbell strategy of sorts like Nassim Talib would say at 90% of all of my liquid assets in say cash or cash like equivalents really boring safe stuff uh, for the for the most part and then 10% that was my gambling money that was my High risk, high reward, high volatility startup binary betting pool. So I had ten percent. Well, if you put in ten percent and then it's locked up for ten years, and let's say you happen to get lucky, or you're good, or both, and that ten percent swells to eighty percent, ninety percent of your net worth, the picture has dramatically changed. But you can't take the chips off the table and rebalance your portfolio because you can't sell them. And so step number one in that is stop bleeding <laughs> or stop making bets. Uh, so all those things coincided at once and helped me to say no. But what I found for myself, and this is the most maybe generalized takeaway from that, is that I don't do moderation well. I think it's very important for people to know what, where they can do moderation and where they're binary. For instance, some people, if they play 10 minutes of World of Warcraft, they're in for 20 hours. And... But at the same time, maybe they have a lot of control over drinking. They can have two drinks and stop. Okay, Someone else might have the opposite uh, experience. And for me in startups, I knew that if I, if I told myself, and a lot of VCs try this and, they, and most of them fail terribly, I'm only going to do a deal a quarter. I'm only going to do five deals a year, whatever the rule might be. 
they still end up vetting every company. It's the same amount of work. No, it's very true. And I tend to be with that zero or a hundred. So for me, it's it's a zero. If I get a, if I get an introduction, my auto response says I'm no longer doing angel investing. It's an immediate archive. And and I think again, uh, to to bring it into the book. Uh, first off, your chapters on how you invest and what you look for in investing were very good. I highly recommend those chapters. We don't have to go over the details of them, but I, I recommend them. But um, what you mentioned before about the fear of missing out, leading to higher cortisol, leading to higher stress. Stress is probably the, the, the worst thing you can do for your health, as you mentioned, and it's directly related to cortisol. And you mentioned a lot of the times, or a lot of these people mentioned kind of the fear of missing out and how to avoid that, how to kind of disconnect or take vacations from that fear of missing out. And I think that's an important thing that is throughout the book. Oh, I, 100%. I think that... And, and it's funny how disconnecting being key to success in a populated world. Yeah, so it's a superpower. I mean, where every, in a world where everyone is connected, the ability to strategically disconnect is a superpower. It really is. And uh, it makes me think of someone you already mentioned, BJ Novak. And something that stuck with me since that conversation, there were, there were a number of things, but one of them was, if you find yourself saying to yourself, but I'm making so much money, that's a sign that you're doing the wrong thing. You're in the wrong place or you're staying with something that that needs to change. If you're like but I'm making so much money. That means you're you're in the wrong place. Another another thing which he said um, was that before they would start writing a season of the office, they would have two or three weeks of this blue sky areas where they would just throw ideas against the dartboard. So again, it would attach less meaning to any one idea mm-hmm. and it would it, you know, nobody's kind of missing out on the critical writing. They're just kind of having fun, and that that yep. set the tone. And I think by doing that, by by having these blue sky sessions or practicing your creativity, which then brings—I mean, you're in the book too. When we talk about, I didn't the, want to mention, but yes, I am <laughs> one of these super geniuses yeah, interviewed in your book. And <laughs> and uh, the idea of lowering your standards to get started. And, uh, I'm glad and, I'm the representative of lowering no, well, the standards. <laughs> no, no, but this is one of the most important concepts in the entire book, because lowering your standards. Neil Strauss, eight-time New York Times best-selling author, has a very similar philosophy. You talk to some of the top filmmakers in the book, same philosophy. You talk to some of the CEOs who have managed sales forces, same story. Low quotas, so they're not intimidated to pick up the phone. How does that translate to creativity? Well, if you think that you have to spew genius word for word and finished prose out of your mouth or out of your hand onto a page, you're not going to get started. Most people are going to procrastinate. So, well, why don't you, why don't you tell your version of it? I'm sure your fans have well, heard well, this before. But, but, but wait, I, I want to, uh, along those lines, your Robert Rodriguez chapter, who was uh, a great, great movie oh, director. Yeah. But in his first movie, um, Machete, uh, uh, he... Um, you know, he, mariachi. Mariachi, yeah. He, he basically... Uh, gives himself this creative constraint that's forced on him because he doesn't have a lot of money, he doesn't have a lot of resources. He lists everything he owns yeah. and says, I'm going to use them all in the movie. And then he does it in Spanish, almost to take the pressure off himself. Like, it doesn't have to be great. And then, of course, it's great. Yeah. And and launches this amazing career. But mm-hmm. almost by doing these, these this weird creative constraint, um, so he doesn't pressure himself on, you know, fear of missing out on the Oscars or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, he takes himself out of the running and that puts him in the running. Definitely. And another thing he does is he will keep his budgets super low, although he has infinite access to capital. He's a superstar. right? But he, he keeps his budgets low so that he can maintain the highest degree of creative control. Yeah. 
And the Rodriguez list that you mentioned is such an amazing idea, just to give you guys some color. So from Mariachi, entire movie, there's, there's so many stories about this movie, but entire movie made for $7,000. And the only reason, I think it was 7000 the only reason it cost that much is because he insisted on using film. Uh, and uh, so he'd be like, all right, what do I have access to? Okay, my friend owns a school bus for whatever reason. All right, we're we're gonna have a sh- we're gonna have a fight scene in the school bus. All right, my cousin owns a bar. Great, we'll have something happen in the bar. That'll be the first scene with the bad guys. And uh, okay, my buddy's sister has a pit bull. Great, the pit bull's in. And then he, it's like somebody had a turtle. So the turtle's in. He's like, people will think we had an animal handler. They'll think we had a huge production budget. And it goes down the list. And then he wrote the script around what he had access to. And uh, there's so many great stories about though there's also one from his uh, and this this comes back to what we were chatting about earlier but the the turning of weakness into strength or trying to use a lens through which you see opportunities when problems present themselves they came across so powerfully with so many of these people and with Robert I think it was from dusk, dusk till dawn so, I don't know if you remember this first day of shooting uh, that's a movie that made me fall in love with Selma Hayek side note but uh, first day of shooting and uh, there's supposed to be this pyrotechnic display or uh, an explosion that goes off. And the explosion causes this fire that rages out of control and destroys like three quarters of the entire set, everything. And people are crying. People are like collapsing onto the ground, holding their heads in their hands. And uh, I think it was his assistant director came over and they're like, you thinking what I'm thinking? He's like, yeah, it's charred. Looks crazy. Let's just keep shooting. We'll like figure out a way around it. And uh, a lot of these seemingly genius stylistic choices, and he talks about interviewing some of his heroes, like Zemeckis and so on. And he's like, that, that weird staccato thing that you did with blah, 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 such a genius stylistic choice. And the guy's like, no, we ran out of money. We had to, hi- we had to fire the effects guy. But again, that segues into a lot of the guests here. It seems like... They confront a problem and then they lean into it almost. Like, how can I turn this problem into something something good? And you've done that in your own life. Like, look at the Tim Ferriss experiment, the TV show. Mm-hmm. You, you it, it, it was, I don't want to call it a problem, whatever. It, it was on initially True TV. A few people saw it. It got, got canceled. Yeah, the entire, the entire kind of startup within Turner got shut down. So everything got tabled. And so you could have been really depressed about it. And instead, you kind of leaned into the problem. You felt it was good. You, you got the rights for probably relatively pennies on the dollar and put it on iTunes. It was the number one show on iTunes for, for weeks. It was yeah. a great, great show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and it takes practice. I mean, these, whether it's generating ideas, as you well know, uh, it takes practice. Whether it is seeing problems, trying to find the opportunity that is hidden in a problem, that takes practice. It's and you you want to do that in the small things because if you practice on the small things, you will then perhaps be able to use it when their shit really hits the fan or you have the big things. But if you if you read about it and you're like, okay, academically I get it. Now I'm going to use that next time. There's a gigantic problem to contend with. You're never going to be able to. To, to perform under those circumstances. I find for me what it involves is, again, taking your step out of the narrative. Like, oh, he said, she said this, I've got to respond this. Like that's kind of the narrative that's going on in your brain. Taking a step out of that for a second and saying, okay, look, this is a problem, but probably if I have the right attitude, something good could come out of this. If, mm-hmm. I, if, I, just, if I just germinate on it for a while. Yeah, yeah, and, and germinating for me, is most productive. This is another pattern uh, that uh, is is across multiple guests. 
journaling of some type. Oh yeah, so many people mentioned journaling. I didn't even include that on my list of the things yeah. that they're, they're all mentioning how they do morning pages. Jul- yeah. You should interview Julia Cameron who first suggests morning should, pages. Yeah. Hopefully she is. She feels fondly about it because I've probably sold 10,000 <laughs> copies of that book. The the Artist's Way is the, is the name of the book, but I, I bought the companion. Where is it? It's actually right here in my bag sitting next to me. Uh, just so you guys don't think I'm bullshitting. See, there it is right there. There it is. All morning pages. Worn and torn. Yeah, worn and torn. And uh, that was the morning pages specifically were introduced to me by a mutual friend, Brian Koppelman. Yeah. Incredibly successful screenwriter, producer, uh, co creator of the hit show Billions that's on right now, which is fantastic. And uh, he said, you know, he recommended morning pages probably to 100 people over time. And then 10% or 10 people, so 10% tried it. And of those 10, it's like nine of them have had multiple hit shows and multiple uh, screenplays sold and so on. So freezing your, whether it's goals or neuroses, anxieties on paper is very powerful because it oftentimes, in the case of a problem, allows you to see how overblown or ridiculous it might be, how trivial it might be, and or, and or how solvable it is. Uh, and last, perhaps, the opportunity that is is somehow buried within it. So I find journaling a great way to stop chasing my tail in my own head because once I put it on paper, it's harder to justify. A well, lot what's of it. great too is um, you know, and, and I've spoken to Brian about this: how he will journal, but then not look at the pages for three years because that's very technically what she suggests. But I like how you take you have two sections of this. You take your journal page and then show it and then break it down like what you're thinking about. And I thought that was very useful. Like that kind yeah. of gives people permission to say you could just put anything on this page and it will work. Yeah, yeah, it's uh and it's a practice. It's just like anything else. It's like doing the kettlebell swings. You need yeah. to do it routinely. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. 
your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gonna use him from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. (music) 
So Tim, we've been hitting so many of the things that um, are on my list. I'm going to kind of quickly go through some of these others, and then I want to get to some specific quotes that I've outlined in the book. And as you can see, again, I ran out of three pads because I kept putting pads on pages <laughs> I wanted to uh, to talk about. So we can't talk about all of them, but I'll go to, to random ones. But first, uh, it seems like a, a, a an author that everyone recommends is uh, Milan Kundera. I'm yep. surprised how many people recommended like either Life Is Elsewhere or you know uh, Unbearable Lightness of being. being. It comes up a lot, uh, particularly for artists. It comes up a lot as a recommendation, specifically for people who are creators or seeking to be creative. They're, and he has a very interesting. He's very structurally interesting. Like he he plays with the form of the novel very well. Yeah, yeah. I I think that uh, that's one that comes up a lot. Siddhartha comes up a lot by Herman Hesse. Very mm -hmm. short read. And uh, to the of course, stoicism comes up a lot because that's uh, you're you're a big uh, fan of stoicism. We have Ryan Holiday on who's written for kind sure. of contemporary stoic books. Uh, yeah, that that comes up a lot. There are a number of documentaries that I've that I'd never heard of prior to interviewing these people that came up multiple times. In retrospect, like the Up series, it's sometimes called Seven Up, it's from the UK, mm. where they revisit the same people every seven years. I think they right. started when they were in preschool perhaps or elementary school and, and have gone all the way up to now 50, 60. And uh, the, the book that, one of the books that had a huge impact on me and led down the rabbit hole. So I'd say half of the guests I've interviewed have come from other guests as introductions, which has been really fun. Like Jocko Willink came via Peter Atia, MD. So you wouldn't necessarily expect that intro to come through a doctor, but it did. And I recall at one point having a neuroscience, two things happened almost simultaneously. So a neuroscientist or neuroscience PhD who had worked with Adam Ghazali, who's an incredible MD PhD who I've interviewed, someone who worked in his lab recommended to me a book called Radical Acceptance. And right off the bat- Tara Brach? Yeah, yeah, Tara, Tara Brach. So right off the bat, I just hated the title. <laughs> <laughs> and I was very judgmental about it, but the recommendation. Why Be, uh, did you really? Ah, uh, it's because it seems like a nice idea. Radical it, acceptance. It seems like a nice idea, but it seemed like it might be some type of guide to resolving marital disputes with tactics that would be platitudes and not hmm. particularly practical. They've just I, I've I've seen many books in the self help or plus relationship genre with titles like that that I have not particularly found useful. This was different. Uh, and I gave it the benefit of the doubt because it came as recommended from a hardcore scientist. I was like, okay, they have a pretty low woo-woo tolerance. Mm -hmm. Let me take a look. And this book by Tara Brock, very well-known Buddhist and meditation teacher, just shook me at my foundation and was the first book, I remember reading it, in LA, this was probably uh, two years ago, maybe a little bit less, a year and a half ago. And I had it on Kindle and I read it one chapter per day at night when I was sitting in the bath with Epsom salts because I was training a lot of the time. And by the time I got maybe 15 or 20% into the book, I had so much work that I wanted to do or experiments that I wanted to run in my own life that I stopped reading. The highlights were basically 80% of the book. And around the same time, I interviewed Maria Popova of Brain Pickings, who's just right. a phenom. I don't know how she digests 
the amount of information she does and turns it into really good, intelligent prose just blows my mind. She mentioned that she meditates, which is probably the most consistent pattern of all across everyone I've interviewed, some type of mindfulness practice. She mentioned that she listened to a guided meditation every day and it was the exact same meditation on a daily basis and it was the, the, the Smile Meditation 2010 from Tara Brock. Hmm. And I go, Tara Brock, I know that name. And that led to then interviewing Tara Brock. But it's, uh, it, it's, it's really been phenomenal to see how the pieces fit together. Because you might look at, say, uh, a Jocko and then a Tara Brock and think they have nothing in common. But the, the best at what they do in any field, if you take the, the A players from, does not matter, the, the Highland Games, carpentry, ballet, and palliative care, they will have more in common with one another than they do with the C players in their own field, in my experience. So it's, it's been really cool to see how you can, you can make a general study of the habits and beliefs that produce excellence, even though they're in an entirely different field. They're, they're sort of inter, interchangeable. I think that's really one of the main takeaways from this book is that you're interviewing people from all walks of life but there's maybe one thing in common, which is that they've all achieved some level of peak performance and they do have enormous amounts in common. Like one thing, one thing you ask many people is, what's the advice you would give the 30-year-old version of yourself? And most of them actually say nothing. I would not tell yeah. that person anything. Yeah, there are two most common replies to that. So one is I wouldn't tell them anything because the mistakes I've made and so on, all of it has led to where I am and I'm happy where I am. And all a lot of them occur after the age of 30. Like a lot yeah. of 27-year-olds have anxiety. Oh, I haven't achieved Mark Zuckerberg's status yet. And yet, you know, you take a guy like Seth Godin, when you ask him the question, he says, oh, I was still nine years of pain, you know, after 30. Oh, sure. Or Dan Carlin and Hardcore History. I mean, he's one of the most respected podcasters and in the world at this point, but that came relatively late in his career. And it was great that he says, he points out right, right up front, I'm not a historian, I don't have a PhD in history, but just just go do it. You, yeah. Nobody has to give you permission, or or by the way, maybe the reverse is true, you, you're given permission. Yep. The society has already given you permission, now you just have to do it. Yeah, exactly. It's like you don't have to... You don't have to fight with the shadow puppets of the peanut gallery. I mean, these these invisible detractors you think are going to shoot you down. And uh, Naval, this is, I don't know if this is in, in the book, but I remember Kamal. So Kamal and Naval. So Kamal told me at one point, Naval said to him, uh, and if I always did what I was qualified for, I would be pushing a broom somewhere. And that is another that is another commonality, right? You take these people and they're doing, they're almost always attempting things they're completely unqualified for, at least at the surface level. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, what was his most, his most profitable film for him personally? Twins. Hmm. And so few people- I didn't know that. Yeah, twins, because everyone saw him as the Terminator. He wanted to do a movie that showcases comedy and they're like, what? The Musclehead Terminator is going to do comedy? No one thought it would succeed. Everybody thought it would flop, except for one or two kind of Confederate collaborators who wanted to do this project with him. And so they did a deal where they they sacrificed or they they gave up their upfront salaries, which would have been a huge portion of the budget, in exchange for massive 
back-end participation, meaning profit sharing. And it just killed because it was an uncrowded bet. Well, you know, another person who who kind of states this theme in a different way is Scott Adams, when he basically says you have two choices. You could be, you know, in the top 1% of a field, which is incredibly hard, or you could be in the top 25% of two fields and combine them, and you're probably going to be the best in that intersection. That's something that I've written about quite a bit as well, but he exemplifies it perfectly with Dilbert. He says, I wasn't the best artist, and I wasn't the funniest guy, but I became like one of the funniest artists out there, and Dilbert is this huge success. Yeah, yeah, completely. He also talks about the, I guess, the six elements of comedy, which are fascinating. Oh yeah, that was great. Yeah, the cuteness, the uh, absurd. It's it's uh, it's, and he talks about Calvin and Hobbes and and how it's set up and so on. But the that advice is also echoed by uh, Mark Andreessen, so billionaire, the co-author of the Mosaic web browser. I mean, tech innovator, engineer extraordinaire, now one of the best known and most successful investors on the planet. Uh, very much talked about the same thing. He said that the the CEOs who often end up doing the best, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, and he, he's actually referred back to that piece by Scott Adams saying that the CEOs who tend to hold the course and be able to perform are not in the top 1% in one area, but they are in the top, say, 20% of two or three. So they they are, Steve Jobs is a great example. I mean, he's he's extremely good at product, extremely good at marketing, extremely good at perhaps a few other things. And it was the combination of those, including odd aspects that you wouldn't have seen as valuable at the outset, like calligraphy. He took a calligraphy course early on, which informed the typefaces they used for the very first word processor they developed, uh, led to this cocktail of elements that enabled him with Waz to create Apple. Well, and, and I'll refer to Scott Adams' Uh, advice again. He basically said, if you don't necessarily have your two things, here's an idea, which is get in the top 25% of public speaking because that combined with just about anything else totally. will put you in the top of that anything else. It, absolutely. And I've, I've, and, and Warren Buffett also, who obviously you don't interview, but Warren Buffett has said the same thing. What really helped him was taking the Dale Carnegie course on public speaking. Yeah, he considers it his best investment of all time. Right. And oh, Who did mention that? One investor did say, uh, it was quote, Mark, Mark Andreessen. Okay, yeah, said that the be, quote of Warren Buffett saying the best investment you can make is in yourself, and here's yeah. that's coming from the best investor in the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's uh, it's what I like about what I like about the philosophies and tactics and tools is that it makes it pretty clear to me, at least, and I think this is part and parcel. It's it's a it's a it's a cousin of what we were just talking about conceptually where you can be in the top 20% of three things and have this disproportionately impressive outcome because of that odd combination. That if you if you want 10x results, right? you want to 10x your results, it doesn't necessarily require 10x the effort. And it's sometimes the smallest little tweaks that can have the largest outputs. Uh, like one, one that comes to mind, which is kind of a weird one, is this device called the Chili Pad which came up multiple times with Rick Rubin, with this super coach and athlete, Kelly Starrett, and a few others, which is a sheet you put under your own bed sheet through which there's a bedside device. You circulate water at 
an exact temperature, but somewhere between 55 degrees and I want to say 85 degrees. And you, you determine your ideal sleep temperature and you don't have to fuss with air conditioning and blankets and so on, particularly with someone else in the bed where that's, no one is ever running the same temperature. It's a huge pain in the ass generally. And uh, that is one of these devices that, uh, as an example, one of my friends who is an extremely successful designer, he's been part of several home run startups and his Achilles heel has always been sleep. He's had difficulty with sleep. He's had onset insomnia, just as I did for a very long time. And got How many the, hours of sleep do you think a person needs? In, very individual. So I know people who, who genuinely need no more than three to four hours of sleep. I get eight to nine. And if I, know, I mean, I'm eight to nine. I noticed Casey Neistat in the book here is three. Yeah. So I always wonder about the variance. There's a huge degree of variance, and that is reassuring to me because... <laughs> there are some books or programs or fill in the blank who paint a sort of a consensus picture of excellence. And they're like, hey, successful people wake up early, man. You sleep when you're dead, blah, 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 right? And uh, there are plenty of people, like Jocko wakes up at 4.30 every morning. Amelia Boone wakes up probably around the same time. Casey Neistat needs three hours of sleep. But then there are people who are like, yeah, I don't really even feel awake until 11 a.m. <laughs> and you know, morning routine, what's that? I like stumble out of bed looking for coffee and I check my email in the shower. Like I'm a mess in the morning, but I focus on a few important things. Here's how I prioritize. And therefore, you don't have to, you don't have to get everything right. You just have to get a few things right. And you can tailor those to your constitution. I'm not a morning person nor do I get three hours of sleep. I like my sleep. <laughs> and uh, that can work, right? You know, I wonder, like, given that there's been, there's all this commonality between all these people, uh, even though there's some variance, like you mentioned, just in sleep, I wonder how much of this is selection bias in the sense that, okay, these are the people who succeeded. There might be other people who are the best in the world at the top 25%, but they're the janitor now at the local school. And so we don't, we don't really know the answer, but yeah, you know, it is is it, and the, you know, you see in the book here that I have, I've, I've highlighted like a billion things. How much can you actually apply all of this advice? You say you have applied, you know, much of the advice. Yeah, I have. I think that so there are, there are few questions there, and I'll, I'll answer each one. So the first is, how do you know? Like you said, how do you know this isn't good to great? Where good to great showcases all these companies, and then a bunch of them crater. Right, and at the time they what were, were some of them was like Kodak, or I don't uh, know. I, I don't remember the exact companies, but these these companies were held up as paragons of excellence in all these different places, and then they crater a few years later. Part of my selection process for not just the podcast, but inclusion in this book, uh, including uh, because about I would say half of the book is is stuff that did not come the from the podcast, so new recommendations or elaborations from past guests, but also some new faces. Uh, like uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter, mm. Square, etc. And the selection criterion, there were several criteria, but one of them was trying to focus on people who had succeeded in a large way, and that can be defined different different ways, at least two or three times. So these are, if once you're lucky, twice you're good, well, like three, four, ten times, you're really good. So, so it's almost like they they know how to learn the language of excellence. Correct, and they have they have an approach. 
And as odd or as weird as it might be, they have some approach that they can describe, uh, and they they may have rules. So that's that's part of it. the The second is how on earth. So the second question is how on earth do you apply all of this? Good God! I mean, there's there's a lot yeah. of stuff. Like we were talking earlier. Okay, uh, a lot of people wake up and they think of the things that they're grateful for. And Tony Robbins elaborates a little bit more. Uh, I want to think of some easy things to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking about, um, you know, you have a, a jar, the jar of awesome, where you put the things that were awesome that happened at the end of the day. And other people say, I go to bed thinking, what were the five things that were great today? Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of kind of affirmation, a lot of kind of reminders of what I'm grateful for or what I'm happy about the past. But again, if you just do that all day, then you're just kind of like, Practicing all these methods all day. Yeah, you can overwhelm yourself with with too much prescription for sure. So my recommendation would be that you dip in and out of this book and viewing healthy, wealthy, and wise as the three legs of the stool of life that hold it up. You need all three. So I would suggest either you can do one of two things. Focus on one area to maximize. So healthy is put first because I think it is the foundation for everything else. If you don't have health, the rest will fall to pieces or has no worth. So you can just focus on the healthy, for instance, and pick one primary primary change in exercise and one primary change in diet. That's pretty easy. So maybe that is kettlebell swings like we discussed two or three times a week and slow-carb diet, let's just say. Could be gymnastic strength training, so working on your, your shoulder extension and your thoracic mobility and experimenting with exogenous ketones, which are these synthetic ketones, which are kind of crazy and interesting. Okay, and that's it. That's literally all that you implement. And so I'll actually give you three options. So that's option number one. Option number two would be taking one suggestion from each section, healthy, wealthy, and wise, which I think is probably logically the easiest way to go for a lot of folks. Just take one habit or quote or principle that you can stick on your refrigerator or on your bathroom mirror as a reminder. So just choose one from each and that's it for at least a two-week period. The last approach, which uh, has proved to be effective for me and I never would have guessed it, is uh, actually recommendation from Cal Fussman who wrote the... uh, what I learned column for Esquire magazine or one of the primary writers for decades. He's interviewed everyone. I mean, Gorbachev, you name it, everyone. And he at one point lost all of his notes for a story about becoming a sommelier for I think it was a week. He had boxes and boxes of hundreds of pages of notes and they were in a basement. It flooded, all the pages turned black with mildew, no notes. And he was he was having a conversation with this novelist who was famous for constantly being on drugs and alcohol. <laughs> and he said, Harry, that's the guy's name. Harry, how can you remember anything when you're always high or drunk? And Harry is this really grizzled old old salty dog. He says, the good shit sticks. <laughs> well, the good shit sticks. And what I mean by that is what I noticed, for instance, and I, I talk a little bit about this in the book, but I flew a researcher out from Montreal to work with me on the book in person for my own psychological well-being. I could have done it remotely, but I wanted a person around. And one morning, he came up to me at the refrigerator, I was grabbing some food, and he said, how are you so calm? And I was 
taken aback by the question because on book deadline, I'm usually a mess. I am usually a stress case, super tightly wound, quick to anger. And he said, Why are you so, how are you so calm? You know, there are a million things flying around. This book is gigantic. There's so many moving pieces. You have family visiting, the car broke down, your dog just got last, injured and lacerated, and you're having to do all sorts of care with the vet. My dog got injured, on and on and on. And what I realized was in the process of reviewing these profiles dozens of times, I just started to incorporate a lot of the belief systems and behaviors without writing it down, without journaling, without doing any of the stuff that I always do. You know, and I'll even suggest one other way to use this book, which I've already started using it for. There are so many great quotes, but the quotes are in context. So if, if you know, they're in the context of you dealing with your issues, asking, let's say, Amanda Palmer, who's dealing with her issues. Mm -hmm. You know, so Amanda Palmer, famous singer, married to Neil Gaiman. Um, you know, and she said this one thing, um, say less. Uh, and she, I, I think she was using that to discuss arguing. Yeah, or conflict resolution. Yeah, and so, but I just started making my riffing on that, making notes of when less is more. So I'm, that was my 10 ideas list for the day. Um, and I think you could take many of these quotes and kind of just take your own interpret. They're, they're valuable quotes because these people have spent lives living this advice. So what's your own, you know, everybody should come up with their own take on a particular quote. This is a useful exercise. So now, which gives me an opportunity to maybe just open randomly and find some random quotes. So hopefully I have, I have some good ones. I think um, I'll skip Peter Thiel because we, we talked a lot about him. Uh, here, here's one I didn't even know who she was. Tracy Denunzio. Uh, this was a great one. When you complain, uh, nobody wants to help you. Mm -hmm. And I see so many times people complain about their life and it really is like a turnoff. And I feel myself when I'm complaining, I hate myself. <laughs> totally. And, and Tracy, she has a condition called, she was born with spina bifida, which is a, a spinal issue that causes incredible pain. And the quote is actually her citing a quotation from Stephen Hawking. Who said like, when you complain? And he has as right as as much a right as anyone to complain, I suppose. But he said when you complain, no one wants to help you. And this has led me to do all sorts of things, like a twenty-one day no complaint experiment, where I, and this is borrowed from actually a, I want to say a pastor or a, a pastor named Will Bowen. But putting on a bracelet, you use a rubber band, and every time you complain, you switch it to the other wrist and you start the clock over. And mm -hmm. trying to go twenty-one days without complaining. And it is a life changer. It's a complete life changer. So that as a rule, that's something that you could put on your mirror so you see it when you're brushing your teeth every morning. You know, and, and, and early, a little lower in that page, um, you talk and you say, I was turned down 27 times when pitching the four-hour work week to New York City publishers. And I was just curious, were you really rejected 27 times? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like, I still were there 27 have... publishers? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, there are tw definitely 27 imprints within... Okay. The publishers, so different divisions of these big publishers, uh, and they were not—they were not always very tactful or delicate about it. I mean, who knew the title "The Four Hour Workweek" could make some people so angry? And what again was the original title? <laughs> the original title was ah, uh, it was lifestyle hustling or something terrible. Yeah, like yeah, it had a drug dealer in it. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's right. The very original one was Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit because that was the tongue-in-cheek name of the class that I, the guest lecture that I gave at Princeton twice a year. Yeah, Drug Dealing for Fun and Profit. I like the four-hour work week much better. Yeah, I do as too. As I'm sure everyone and, said to you. And honestly, the four-hour work week was 
in a way, luck because some of the big retailers, the buyers for some of the big retailers said, drugged in for fun and profit. There's no way we're going to carry a book that has that uh. title. And so the publisher came back to me. I really love Drug Daily for Fun and Profit. And they said, sorry. It's playful. Like, good news, bad news. Retailers are interested, but we need to change the title. And that's, and then a bunch of Google tests and things later, four hour work week. Okay, here's another quote. Um, uh, Luis Bon An, another guy, oh, CEO of Duolingo, which I'm familiar with, but I wasn't familiar specifically with him until, until this. Um, he said, the value of I don't understand. And I, I myself think that's incredibly valuable. I've seen that in the best. Negotiators and businessmen, you have to use that all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 so powerful in its simplicity, and just like being able to disconnect in a world that is always connected, I think it's an undervalued superpower. And uh, and also admitting you don't know something, which is yeah. very hard. You're not allowed in most situations. You're not allowed to admit you don't know something. Like if you're on TV, let's say as a pundit, you can't say I don't understand. Yeah, not only that, but I mean, a, a very high percentage of human beings, high profile or not, are making it up as they go along. And there's a lot of bullshit out there. So if you look at say Malcolm Gladwell and his dad, who would just say I don't understand. Oh Expl- yeah, he was another one who yeah, mentioned that. I don't understand. Explain that to me. I don't understand. Explain that to me. And his dad was a mathematician, so he had, <laughs> as Malcolm put it, zero intellectual insecurities. Just didn't even, did not, could not care less if someone thought he was an idiot. So he'd be like, I don't understand. Explain that to me. And uh, let's see, I think Alex also talked about that, Bloomberg. He's like, sometimes the most important question is the obvious, seemingly dumb question that's just hidden in plain sight. It's okay, with this subprime lending crisis, why would anyone lend money to people they know can't pay them back? Like that's that. It seems like maybe a naive question, but like that's a good question to ask. And then, boom! All of a sudden, you have an entire hour-long story about answering that question. Uh, let's see. I'm gonna find. I'm just randomly hitting different pages here. Um, oh yeah, I think this is a, this is also a valuable one that I've heard in the past. Justin Beretta, who I did not know, mm-hmm. um, had best advice ever received: don't force it, which is so true. I think. I think if somebody's like. Desperately trying to find that first customer, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah. You know, desperately trying to um, raise money or, I don't know, lose a thousand pounds, like you got to back off on, on yeah. something. Yeah. The forcing it, I think, applies to so many areas, whether it's a relationship, I think is often the case, uh, creative work, writing. Uh, it's, it's always depressed and amused me how if I, Let's just take two different instances for blog writing, blog post writing. <laughs> there are posts that I will labor over intensively for months <laughs> in some cases. And they're so detailed and I think they're 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 so valuable and they're greeted with a collective yawn. And then Do you get depressed after those? I get depressed after those. I, I get I get I get a little down. It's just such I mean, good God, that's a lot of energy and time expenditure. But then there are other posts where it's like something will happen, I'll be like, you know what? That really pisses me off. And I'll write this impassioned short post that takes me a half hour to put together. And it's one of the most popular posts. Well, I think it was of one the of year. the comedians you interviewed who said, uh, figure out what makes you angry. What makes you angry. Yeah. Which is great. It's actually great creative advice. And it, and instead of looking at anger as a negative thing, you can use it as fuel, you can use it as a tool. Poe Bronson, who's a well known writer, when I asked him ages before I ever wrote the four hour work week, I asked him during a QA, what he did to deal, what one should do to deal with writer's block. And he said, write about what makes you angry. 
Hmm. And what that, makes you angry right now? Other what, than the, the total length of this podcast, uh, what makes me angry right now, and this is going to be sort of uh, ironic in a way, is what makes me very worried more than angry, but it also gets me angry, is the insidious, creeping self censorship and destruction of the First Amendment in the United States right now. The fact that we have brilliant people being disinvited from college campuses because they may offend or trigger a tiny group of students on campus. That is a, an extremely dangerous trend. And uh, I think that is more terrifying than anything else we have. Uh, so that's and, like a that's like a macro political thing, which I agree with. But what about what what personally makes you angry right now? What personally makes yeah. me angry? Or scared. Uh, th- I mean, I'm not dodging here, but I personally think about this a lot mm. uh, because I get the sense, the hypersensitivity and entitlement uh, of those who are using kind of mock outrage or like genuine hypersensitivity to attack others on the internet. It's something I run into all the time. And... Uh, it, so it does personally affect me for sure, and that I think is is uh, I'll, okay. You know, I, I'll tell you something that, that personally bothers me quite a bit, which is also very counterproductive, and that is the the consequenceless labeling of other people as racist, sexist, fill in the blank, ist. Those are very powerful words, and there's currently no penalty for people throwing them around in a very haphazard way, despite the fact that it can destroy careers, it can destroy marriages, it can just leave a wake of destruction. Uh, and these, these things are thrown around very, very lightly. It's like people just walking into a neighborhood and shooting a gun in all directions. It's very, very, uh, very, very dangerous. And... Uh, I had, and, that, and that's the easiest way to discount someone's work. Like someone can look yeah. at you and say, "Okay, this is easy for the white male in America to say," and then suddenly they've just discounted all of your work and research and and thousands of hours of interviews and preparation yeah. because of some, you know, something yeah. that's not necessarily meaningful to the work you've done. Yeah, it's it's, it's sort of this intellectually dishonest. Uh, McCarthyism-like censorship that is is really insidious, and so that type of kind of Fahrenheit 451 self-imposed burning of books. Which, by the way, folks who haven't read that in a while, you might remember it as an, a oppressive government and totalitarian government that is, that orders the burning of books. But it started with people themselves burning books that would that would offend. And so, so to that end, uh, you know, one of you were, we're looking at some quotes. One of my favorites that I use a lot on the internet <laughs> when I'm engaged. The World Wide Web? The World Wide Web. The, yeah, exactly. Is uh, from May West. And the quote is, those who are offended easily should be offended more often. Well, um, which brings us to Kevin Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> who actually is never offended by anything. <laughs> no. Um, and he says, this is so fascinating, this quote. 
productivity is for because everyone's obsessed with productivity. And, he, and but he says productivity is for robots. What what humans are going to be really good at is asking questions, being creative, and experiences. And mm-hmm. it's such a great point because once we master some area of productivity, we can then start outsourcing it, which is your whole point in the four hour work week, really. Right. And but there's always questions to be asked. Better yeah. to have a good question than to have a good solution. Yeah, well, for for a lot of reasons, right? Because you can you can get the best answer to a bad question, and ultimately that could, at best, not serve you, and at worst, could cause a lot of harm or steer you in completely the wrong direction. Uh, so, garbage in, garbage out, definitely applies to questions, which is part of why the podcast has been so much fun for me. I get to think about questions. And I get to study them and I get to look at what a James Lipton on Inside the Actor Studio does versus a Larry King, versus a Charlie Rose, versus a fill in the blank, versus James Altucher, versus well, it's just fascinating. I, I have to say, that is, a, that is a great part about podcasting is that you could then suddenly start to see the subtleties in different interview styles and learn to appreciate them, which I never was able to, to do before. Yeah, and I mean, Tony Robbins uh, has said, and uh, he's 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 just endlessly, increasingly fascinating. The more I get to know him, the quality of your questions determines the quality of your life. So, the maybe underappreciated aspect of studying questions is that it questions don't just apply to interacting with other people. The questions you ask yourself are arguably even more important. So, like, uh, what's an example today? What question do you ask yourself? What, uh, and by the way, I'm asking yeah. a dumb question because you also give us advice. There are no dumb questions. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I don't think that's a dumb question. Uh, question I asked myself today uh, was, "Am I hunting antelope or am I hunting field mice?" And this is actually a oh, that came from um, Newt Gingrich. Yeah, who I disagree with on almost every level, but nonetheless is excellent at certain types of political. Negotiation, persuasion, and so on, strategy. So that quote is in reference to the lion's ability to maybe survive by hunting field mice, uh, but probably ultimately starving, even though they're these very rewarding little, in modern terms for us humans, dopamine hits. So it's like, are you, the way I translate that is being busy or being productive? And they're not the same thing. Uh, and that was just with respect to planning what I want to do with this book, planning with what I want to do on the podcast. You know, am I focusing on the trivial many to keep myself busy, which provides an illusion of progress, or am I really taking the time to figure out which antelope uh, I am going to pursue, i.e., the the critical few? So I was thinking a lot about that today. Well, well, uh, and then we'll go to your chapter here. My favorite thought exercise: fear setting, as opposed to the commonly used goal setting. So, what do you think you're afraid of that you haven't yet fully attempted because you're afraid you're going to fail? You've succeeded at so many things. If you, for instance, do you ever consider, oh, I'm going to write a novel now, mm-hmm. and that could to- it's different type of writing. It could totally bomb. Are you, is that a, a fear of yours? <laughs> Uh, novel, I have a healthy respect for the difficulty of novel writing. I don't think I'll write a novel uh, anytime soon. Uh, I would say writing and producing and ultimately creating a feature film is something that I have some degree of trepidation about. I would like to do it, but I have some degree of trepidation. And most of the things that I would, I say, fear are not related to projects. 
And that's in part because I, I approach it now very much the way that Scott Adams does, in the sense that with his blogging, you know, his wife was like, why are you blogging? It's in a very minute incremental gain financially. It consumes a lot of time. But he was looking at not just the blog for the obvious benefits, but for the skills and relationships he would develop mm. through that project, even if the project failed. So for me, I almost always try to rig the game, just like Scott Adams would recommend, so that I win even if it fails. Like podcasting, okay, so the podcast folds after 10 or I quit after 10 episodes. I got better at asking questions, which helps my research and my thinking. I got better at reaching out to people above my pay grade to try to engage with them. Do, do so you kind of work through that exercise like, okay, I'm going to try podcasting, um, and then you write out the line, if this fails, I've at least gained X. I absolutely write it down. Yeah, I'll, I'll brainstorm. The question is, how could I win even if this fails? And it usually relates to skills or relationships that I develop. And uh, the fear setting is very, that, that's what I do before or when I have decisions that are causing me stress or potential moves, changes that are producing stress in my life, I do this exercise of fear setting where I write down all of the worst case scenarios, all of the, the worst things in detail that could happen if I chose to do X or quit at Y, whatever it might be. And then that's, that's in the first vertical column. I'll just, I'll just take a piece of paper and put two lines down so I have three columns. First column is all the worst things that could happen. Second column is what I could do to minimize the likelihood of each of those happening. And then the last column is how can I get back to where I am now if those happen. Hmm. And once I go through that, it, it disarms and de-risks the entire proposition. And I usually realize that the fears are extremely unfounded and that if there is any damage, it's either trivial or reversible or both. I think that's uh, that's really good advice. Um, I'm going to find at least one more. Uh, oh, this was actually a really interesting one from Eric Weinstein, who runs uh, Teal, Teal, Teal Capital. Capital. Mm -hmm. uh, consent, and this is related to what you were talking about earlier. What your what your fears are about what's happening in society in general. Consensus is how we bully people. Yep. And you know that's that's a scary thought because we do you know you think of democracy as this kind of god given uh, philosophy that enlightened people in the 1700s came up with, but there's a dangerous side to it, which is that consensus can really harm the people who don't agree. Absolutely, and and the point he makes is that for for those things that are that are purely and defensibly fact based. Uh, irrefutably accurate. You don't need a consensus. There's no algebra consensus because <laughs> you don't need it. Uh, and yet, but there is a Washington consensus. There is a fill-in-the-blank consensus. And whenever you hear that, it is a means of social pressure and manipulation to be outside of that consensus if you are holding a minority opinion. I think the good thing there, though, is as a creator or a creative person, moving outside the consensus uh, and trying to to create either a business or art out of the minority. That's where you get into okay, I'm gonna, uh, you know, build a following from a smaller group, the people who aren't in the consensus. Oh, totally. And you mentioned Kevin Kelly, of course. He is well known for writing one of my favorite essays called "One Thousand True Fans," which uh, relates to this in a lot of ways. But uh, Eric and I, so we were talking about my my what scares me or what the fears are, we're, we're discussing these sort of social justice warrior uh, outrage porn <laughs> culture that 
that you see most visibly, I suppose, in social media. Uh, so he and I actually debuted a term in that interview that oh, I'd been yeah, that I'd been that. yeah that I'd been thinking about. So I like experimenting. Words are weapons, and what you the words you use dictate how you think. And I've experimented with creating words and trying to inject them into the popular lexicon a few different times. So there are phrases like lifestyle design, which was successful. Then there was another one that I threw out there about, I want to say nine months ago, something like that, to see what would happen. And I said, I propose a new word, teladultery. <laughs> when, I, when I love you, that. Yeah. Find it here, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. When you watch a TV show solo that you've agreed to watch with a significant other, right? Teladultery. Okay, my, my daughter yeah. just committed teladultery on me. <laughs> she finished watching. We were both watching the series Lost, which is from 10 years ago, but we were both watching it together. She just went ahead and finished the whole series. Yeah, tell the adultery. <laughs> and that that had some legs. And I remember the moment I was with my mom in an airport overseas and she had a magazine and she said, oh, this is a really funny word. You'll like this. And it was tell adultery. And I know I'm the first person to use it. If you do a search, it, it brings up my Twitter post. That's funny. Now, now that's for shits and giggles. For, for actual, to actually help steer and a national conversation and change the problem of people throwing around racist and sexist and so on with no fear of repercussions and damaging other people in significant ways, uh, I came up with the term bigoteer. So a bigoteer is obviously a bad thing. <laughs> That's why it's composed the way it is. And uh, these are people who label other people bigots for personal gain, whether it's more clicks, whether it's... Yeah, it's the cheapest way to get, uh, yeah. to get a following. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so if that term gains traction and people begin to use it, someone could then have on the Wikipedia page, for instance, is a well-known bigoteer. Hmm. And that is not a bad thing. Uh, that is not a good thing. It's a, it is a clear consequence. And I think potentially could act as a disincentive for people to to behave in such a reckless fashion, uh, but we'll see. But that is that was the first that was the first debut of Bigotier was in that interview with with Eric Weinstein. So so in the why section because I, I appreciate your su suggestions in the health section. I'm probably going to apply them. The wealthy section people should definitely read all of your tips on angel investing and all the interviews with great investors. In the why section, what and and we'll even close it out with this. What would you say? is the advice that you were able to immediately apply where you noticed kind of what you call force multiplier results. Like there was a big effect on your life when you apply, because wisdom is more subtle, it's more mm -hmm. subjective. Yeah, there are there are a lot. Uh, pick so one. I'll pick <laughs> one. But I'll just give you the first one that comes to mind. There, Derek Sivers is the a shit that sticks. Yeah, the shit that sticks. Uh, Derek is a treasure trove, as are a lot of the folks. But uh, I will go to B.J. Miller. So he's the since we mentioned him already, doesn't require a lot of explanation. His answer for what would you put on a billboard was, "Don't believe everything that you think." Mm. And I think that is extremely profound. And the way I translated that for myself, particularly after some of the. Uh, psychedelic work that I've done over the last three years was uh, a phrase. So I translated that into an actionable phrase for myself, which was don't retreat into story. Because I, and I think almost everyone, have stories that are disabling. They are narratives about 
why I'm not good at this or why maybe I'm a bad person because of X, Y, or Z. Or I've always been this disabling thing and I'm, I will always be this disabling thing. And, and, or I will, I will start to fantasize in some way about someone else doing something malicious to me. They, they didn't show up on a conference call. This is an, ex, an exaggeration. I'm not quite this. <laughs> I, I tightly wound. Yeah, okay. So it's like someone didn't show up on a conference call and I set everything aside to be on the conference call. That person disrespected me because they're probably doing A, B, C, D, or E. All made up. It's just imaginary. Yet I wind myself up and, 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 uh, and create this problem. So when I start going down one of those imaginary routes, I will my pattern interrupt is don't retreat into story. Don't retreat into story. And I think it's hard because sometimes it's a blind spot. Like sometimes you don't really know what it is you're thinking. That's exactly right, which is, which is part of the reason that using, say, there are a million ways to go about it, but whether you listen to a Tara Brock 2010 smile meditation, which is a recording, uh, or use an, uh, an app like Headspace, or do some type of meditation or mindfulness practice, which 80 plus percent of the people in the book do, on a daily basis so that you have at least a, a tiny fraction of your day which is spent observing your thoughts. Uh, I do this in the morning just as a warm-up so that I'm less reactive later. That helps you to develop the self-awareness or you can go, oh shit, I know what I'm doing. I actually see what I'm doing. Let's not get swept away, in the, swept away with this wave of like pending rage that I'm manufacturing for myself. So... You know, don't retreat into story. All right, well, Tim, Tim Ferris. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how long has this podcast been. This has been like one of my yeah, longest podcasts yeah, yeah. ever. This is, this is uh, I think, three three hours, maybe yeah. maybe longer. Tools of Titans: The Tactics, Routines, and ha- I didn't even read the subtitle before this. <laughs> the Tactics, Routines, and Habits of Billionaires, Icons, and World Class Performers. Congratulations! I really do think this is. I've, as you know, because you've been on my podcast a bunch of times. I've enjoyed all of your other books. I enjoy the Tim Ferriss Experiment. I enjoy your podcast. This is this is really the best book. I, as you see, I've outlined a billion things. I'm gonna plagiarize it, just without even giving you credit. I'm gonna plagiarize it constantly. <laughs> uh, I'll give talks about it without mentioning your your name at all. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. I flew out here to get you on the podcast. And I, I really appreciate it. I always love hanging out and I've learned a lot from you. I mean, you're in there for a reason. And I have recommended your chapter and advice to a lot of the other titans in the book, quite frankly. Excellent. So I, I always appreciate and value time with you, man. So thanks for having me on. Thanks, Tim. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. Probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.